Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello and welcome to Indian Country News, a half-hour weekly program bringing you news and opinion pieces from a variety of sources across Turtle Island and sometimes beyond. This one's being recorded on the 20th of February for the listening week that begins the 21st. Your reader's name is Susan Shirey. For openers, this week you'll be hearing about three events that have recently passed. A hoop dance contest, President's Day, and more on the recent Super Bowl. Starting with article from nativenewsonline.net written by Darren Thompson, posted on February 20th. Heard Museum hosts historic crowd for 33rd Annual World Hoop Dance Contest. Dateline Phoenix. The Heard Museum hosted its 33rd World Hoop Dance Contest this past weekend in historic fashion. This year's competition included 108 competitors from the United States and Canada, the highest number the contest has ever hosted. Hoop dancers were organized into four categories according to age, the youngest being 6 to 12 years and the oldest 40 and over. They were judged in four separate elements, precision, rhythm, showmanship, creativity, and speed. The competition required dancers to wear bells or an item that let judges know that a dancer is on beat with the drum and for each hoop to be used during the dancer's performance. Kosad Singers from Oklahoma was the competition's co-host Southern Drum and Thunderboy Singers from the Hopi Indian Reservation in Arizona was the co-host Northern Drum both drums sang 27 songs each on Saturday and another dozen songs in the competition finals on Sunday. Youth and teen divisions were limited to five-minute performances. The adult and senior divisions were limited to seven-minute performances. Many dancers traveled, pardon me, traveled thousands of miles to compete in this annual hoop dance celebration that brings some of the world's most renowned hoop dancers to the world-famous Heard Museum. When the competition started in 1991, it featured just seven dancers. The hoop dance has a deep history among indigenous peoples in North America, where many dancers tell stories with their hoops to the rhythm of songs sung on a drum. Today, the art form is celebrated and loved by many, and crowds of the annual hoop dance competition have been growing into the thousands. Food lines at Emerson's Fry Bread, a popular food truck, had, wait, had a wait time of 90 minutes during the competition. For more on the hoop dance, turning to Indian Country Today News, that's dot .org, Written by Lauren Cobley, edited for length. Indigenous hoop dance combines tradition and history with creativity and individuality. Commonly passed down from one generation to the next, hoop dance is usually taught by a family member or close friend. 
but dancers like Ginger Sykes-Torres, Eva Bighorse, and Bernice Talachi have stepped up to help the younger generation learn the intricate footwork and hoop movements while understanding the meaning and beauty of hoop dancing. Sykes says, Dance was something I did as a hobby to maintain ties to my culture. Performing was an opportunity to educate others about being a modern-day Native American and share that we are not only in history books. Kaya Torres learned to dance before she can even remember. Her mother, Sykes Torres, made Kaya her first set of hoops when she was a baby and has continued to do so as her daughter grows. Sykes, who is also Navajo, learned the dance when she was around 14. Now she passes the traditions of hoop dance on not only to her own children, but also to indigenous children around the valley. I dance for my mom and Eva Big Horse because they taught me how to dance, said Kaya, who is Navajo. Growing up as what she called an urban Indian, Sykes Torres said she did not have much exposure to native dance styles because she grew up outside of her tribal homeland. After seeing her younger cousin hoop dance, she tried it. She loved it so much and even went on to incorporate some gymnastics that she previously had learned in her, into her routines. Sykes was the first female champion in the teen division in 1997 and went on to attend Stanford University where she continued to dance while earning a bachelor's degree in Earth Systems. Big Horse, who is Navajo, started teaching at Ballet Arizona in early 2022, but her introduction to hoop dance came much earlier. Her first teacher was her father. He taught all of his children, and Big Horse said she looked up to him because he was a talented dancer. She said, I came to class a year ago. When I dance, I focus on the hoop. The hoop is the medicine we use to bless people through our dance. That was a quote from Gianna Begay, who is seven years old and Navajo and Anishinaabe. Beginning with a single hoop that represents the circle of life, the dancer moves to the beat of the drum and continues picking up hoops to make other shapes. These formations represent various animals, elements, and seasons. Today's dance still carries some of the original elements. As native dancers, hoop dance is a way to give back to the blessing of earth and show respect to the Creator for blessing the earth, said Big Horse. Since it still holds some of its healing purposes, the dance provides medicine to the people observing through inspiration and positive energy, she said. Next article from Indian Country Today, written by Mark Trehant. On President's Day, holiday to celebrate or somber memories? President's Day has its roots in the celebration of two presidents, George Washington and Abraham Lincoln, two complicated histories. This was posted February 19th, and it will be edited for length. It's President's Day, so much to, well, not celebrate. It's a complicated holiday for Native Americans because of the complex, troubled history between tribes and the U.S. government. Take Teddy Roosevelt. 
There he is, smiling on the side of a building in Phoenix. It's a statement about popular culture. Teddy the teddy bear. Teddy the iconoclast and Teddy the cowboy. Cowboys and Indians. That stark story, that dark story, is Roosevelt's story. He was quoted as saying, in part, the most vicious cowboy has more moral principles than the average Indian. Take 300 low families of New York and New Jersey, support them for 50 years in vicious idleness, and you will have some idea of what the Indians are. Reckless, revengeful, fiendishly cruel. Cruel is the ironic word. That same year, Roosevelt praised the Sand Creek Massacre as, quote, on the whole, as righteous and beneficial a deed as ever took place on the frontier. About 20 years ago, I had my own encounter with the president. I was given the opportunity to ask President George W. Bush a question at a convention that included the Native American Journalists Association. I wanted to ask a question that the president could answer, something just for him, and this is what I came up with. Most school kids learn about government in the context of city, county, state, and federal, and of course, tribal governments are not part of that at all. Mr. President, you've been a governor and a president, so you have a unique experience looking at it from two directions. What do you think tribal sovereignty means in the 21st century, and how do we resolve conflicts between tribes and the federal and state governments? He was clearly flustered, pardon me, he said, tribal sovereignty means that it's sovereign. You, you're, you're, uh, you've been given sovereignty, and you're viewed as a sovereign entity. The president did recover, and as Suzanne Hario has pointed out, when you think about it, Bush's answer was right. Sovereignty is sovereignty, end of sentence. But there's also something to the idea that at a meeting that included the Native American Journalists Association, the president was not prepared. So what does it mean when the president doesn't understand the policy that is charged, that he is charged with implementing? President Bush is not the only executive to face this question. President Ronald Reagan was in Moscow when he was asked why he was refusing to meet with a delegation of American Indians, and he replied, let me tell you just a little something about the American Indian in our land. We have provided millions of acres of land for what are called preservations or reservations, I should say. They, from the beginning, announced that they wanted to maintain their way of life as they had always lived there in the desert and the plains and so forth, and we set up these reservations so they could and have a Bureau of Indian Affairs to help take care of them. At the same time, we provide education for them, schools on the reservation. And they're also free to leave the reservations and be American citizens among the rest of us, and many do. Some still prefer, however, that way, that early way of life. And we've done everything we can to meet their demands as to how they want to live. Maybe we made a mistake. Maybe we should not have humored them in wanting to stay in that kind of primitive lifestyle. Maybe we should have said, no, come join us, be citizens along with the rest of us, as I say, Many have. Many have been very successful. And I'm very pleased to meet with them, talk with them at any time, and see what their grievances are. 
You'd be surprised some of them became very wealthy because some of those reservations were overlaying great pools of oil, and you can get very rich pumping oil. And so I don't know what their complaint might be. End of quote. President's Day has its roots in the celebration of two presidents, George Washington and Abraham Lincoln. Washington recognized the treaty process itself. In a message to Congress, he wrote, The general government only has the power to treat with the Indian, pardon me, Indian nations, and any treaty formed and held without its authority will not be binding. Washington even directly negotiated treaties, including the 1790 Treaty of New York between the U.S. and the Muscogee Indian, pardon me, Indian, pardon me again, Muscogee Nations, and dinner was a technique for Washington. He had often invited tribal delegations to his homes, both in Philadelphia and Mount Vernon. And the author Colin Calloway says in his book, in his first term in office, Washington dined often more than once with Mohawks, Senecas, Oneidas, Cherokees, Chickasaws, and Creeks, and he continued to dine with Indian delegates to the very end of his presidencies. In the last weeks of November 1796, he dined with four groups of Indians on four different days. When the Smithsonian's National Museum of the American Indian opened up its treaty exhibit, it included a treaty actually signed by George Washington. Suzanne Hario curated that exhibit and explained the significance of a panel there about that deals with the 1790 Muscogee Treaty. John Trumbull, a painter, had just finished his famous painting of George Washington, and George Washington wanted to play a joke on the Muscogee delegates, so he had Trumbull set up that painting, and then Washington opened a door right next to it, and there he was, standing next to himself. Hario said, You don't think of Washington as having a sense of humor, and it adds a whole new dimension. I just think that's pretty wonderful. They loved it. The Muscogee delegates loved it so much that they made a ceremony for it and changed the name of a tribal town, a Muscogee town, to Nuyaka. That's the sound they heard when they heard people say New York. The second president originally honored for President's Day was Abraham Lincoln. Perhaps he was the most complicated of the American presidents. Although he did not execute any generals or top Civil War leaders for treason or insurrection, he did order the death of 38 Dakotas by hanging in Minnesota after a short war where Dakota warriors attacked white villagers trying to get food for their families. The army had given him a list of 304 people that had been sentenced to execution. The president went through that list, striking off many names, leaving 38 to be hanged. There was not a fair trial or any other judicial proceeding. Lincoln was also a champion of Western expansion, promoting the Transcontinental Railroad as a way to consolidate, quote, civilization. Tribal people and nations were in the way. And there is another Lincoln story. Spain's king had sent symbolic canes to the Pueblos as a recognition of sovereignty. And at the urging of the U.S. government's agent to the Pueblos, Michael Steck, 
19 ebony canes with silver tips with A. Lincoln sketched into them were presented to Pueblo governors. The symbolism of those canes was not lost on Richard Nixon. Nixon put the weight of the presidency behind the return of Taos Pueblo land taken by the U.S. Forest Service in 1906, and President Nixon sent a cane, like Lincoln's, to the Taos leadership. Nixon's accomplishment, accomplishments include the return of Blue Lake and his presidential message rejecting termination and instead recognizing tribal self-determination. The Indian Self-Determination and Education Assistance Act was a legal def redefinition of that policy. And also the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act was completed in the Nixon years. It was during the administration of Gerald Ford that the Indian Health Care Improvement Act was signed into law. He said, this bill is not without its faults, but after personal review, I have decided that the well-documented needs for improvement in Indian health manpower, services, and facilities outweigh the defects in the bill. I am signing this bill because of my conviction that our first Americans should not be last in opportunity. And a bit more on the topic from a second article by Levi Rickert from Native News Online, posted the 20th. Title of this one is U.S. Presidents in Their Own Words Concerning American Indians, and I'll just read a few of these quotes. The introduction says, Some tribal offices and federal government offices are closed today to commemorate President's Day. And I'd like to add a note that this is being recorded on that day, President's Day. American Indians have a different worldview than to non-Indians of the federal government, including American presidents. That is not to say American Indians are anti-American or even anti-government. That is evidenced by the large percentage of American Indians who serve in the U.S. military. However, given what American Indians have had to endure in the United States, understandably many view history through a different lens. This is true of even how the men who have been President of the United States are viewed by Native people. Perhaps this list of quotes will give a sense of how the hostility toward American Indians has lessened during the past 200-plus years. Just as federal policies toward American Indians have changed, so too have attitudes of presidents. So, just a few of those. From George Washington, Indians and wolves are both beasts of prey, though they differ in shape. From Thomas Jefferson, if ever we are constrained to lift the hatchet against any tribe, we will never lay it down till that tribe is exterminated or driven beyond the Mississippi. In war, they will kill some of us. We shall destroy them all. I'm going to skip over Andrew Jackson. From Theodore Roosevelt, I don't go so far as to think that the only good Indians are dead Indians, but I believe nine out of ten are. From Franklin Roosevelt, all of our people all over the country, except the pure-blooded Indians, are immigrants or descendants of immigrants, including even those who came here on the Mayflower. 
Harry Truman said, The United States, which would live on Christian principles with all of the peoples of the world, cannot omit a fair deal for its own Indian citizens. From John Kennedy, For a subject worked and reworked so often in novels, motion pictures, and television, American Indians remain probably the least understood and most misunderstood Americans of us all. Lyndon Johnson said, The American Indian, once proud and free, is torn now between white and tribal values, between the politics of language of the white man and his own historic culture. His problems, sharpened by years of defeat and exploitation, neglect and inadequate effort, will take many years to overcome. And from Richard Nixon, what we have done with the American Indian is in its way as bad as what we imposed on the Negroes. We took a proud and independent race and virtually destroyed them. We have to find ways to bring them back into decent lives in this country. And from Jimmy Carter, it is the fundamental right of every American as guaranteed by the First Amendment of the Constitution to worship as he or she pleases. This legislation sets forth the policy of the United States to protect and preserve the inherent right of American Indian, Eskimo, Aleut, and Native Hawaiian people to believe, express, and exercise their traditional religions. And finally, from Joe Biden, the federal government has long broken promises to Native American tribes who have been on this land since time immemorial. With her appointment, Congresswoman Holland will help me strengthen the nation-to-nation -nation relationship. A few paragraphs from the following article, Native People Grapple with Super Bowl Celebration. This was posted the 15th. Munti Sinqua spent only one minute on stage inside the Footprint Center in downtown Phoenix during the NFL's Super Bowl opening night, but it's a minute that will remain unforgettable. The native hoop dancer had never been that close to football players and coaches about to compete in the league's biggest game. As he and other indigenous performers sang and danced, they heard elated hoops from indigenous people in the audience. It gave him chills. And he said, I'm just really grateful that they did highlight our people because I think it's really important. He is a citizen of the Hopitewa and Choctaw nations. But when he thinks of that inclusion coupled with Super Bowl cameras panning to Kansas City Chiefs fans doing the maligned tomahawk chop, Sinqua says that, just, that that juxtaposition leaves him perplexed. This past week in Arizona, where at least a quarter of the land base is native land, there's been a complicated mix of delight for the NFL involving native and indigenous cultures and disdain for those cultures being appropriated. One participant said, if they don't think it's okay to do, then maybe we should stop. But the Native Americans I've come in contact with have said they didn't have any issues with it. Basically, it is all opinion-based. We've gone a long way to make sure that we are respectful of everybody's culture and being vigilant about it. This was simply a technician, refrigerator technician from Kansas who was there for the game. The origin of the nickname Chiefs may have more to do with the mayor who helped lure the franchise from Dallas in 1963 than any connection to Native Americans. Mayor H. Roe Bartle was a large man known as the Chief for his many years of leadership in the Boy Scouts. 
Team owner Lamar Hunt reportedly named the team the Chiefs in honor of Bartle. Even the connection with Bartle has undertones that some find offensive, though. Though he was white, Bartle start, pardon me, started a youth camping organization that he called Mikose Tribe that remains active and continues to use Native American attire and language. Young participants are called Braves, and the top leader is the Chief. Chief's President Mark Donovan said last week that Bartle obtained permission from the Northern Arapaho Tribe to use the term Chief. Rhonda Lavaldo, founder of the Kansas City-based indigenous activist group called Not in Our Honor, disputed that narrative. James Simmermeyer, a citizen of the Kahari tribe in Northern Carolina, North Carolina, watched most of the game from his home and said he appreciated the involvement of Cinqua's dance troupe and a University of Arizona student who is Navajo and deaf using Native American sign language during America the Beautiful before the game. At the same time, he said it felt like one step forward, two steps back when he heard the chant Kansas City fans do during the chop. He said there's no positive reason to support it, but it just kind of affirms the negative behavior that the Kansas City fans are doing. I can't imagine how many other people out there are having the conversation with their non-native colleagues about whether or not they're offended by this. Well, I have to say that brings me to the end of our time for this week. So thank you for joining us. This was Indian Country News. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.